we are even crawling into our minds even now. Hold the enemy at bay who would distract us from this word and change us. Help us to believe the gospel again and to leave this room different people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you would turn your Bibles or a phone to Exodus chapter 12, we're going to be in this passage this morning. I'm going to read verses 1 to 6 and then 21 to 28. Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the, lamb is too, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make for your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take from it, take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Verse 21. Then Moses called all the Israel, elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he has passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. This is the word of the Lord. If you've been with us in this journey through Scripture this week, we have covered a lot of territory. We started the week with God uh, commissioning Moses, calling him through the burning bush to go to Pharaoh. From that point, we had an extremely bizarre scene in Exodus chapter 4 that I'm going to leave for Andy to cover with Moses and his wife and his son, and I don't know what's happening there. You can figure that out on your own. And then we get to the ten plagues, right, come through. We see God leading the people from Egypt by a, a pillar of fire and a cloud. We see them cross the Red Sea. We see them come to Sinai. We see them get the Ten Commandments. If you've read already today, we see the, the Mosaic Covenant given and confirmed. We have covered a lot of territory in one week in our Bibles, and we only get to preach on one passage. There's multiple sermons that we could do on any number of those things, but at the end of the day, We come to Exodus 12 and we camp here because in reality, this is probably one of the 10 most important chapters, maybe in the whole Bible, certainly in the Old Testament, because it's in Exodus chapter 12 that we see a real turning point for the people of God. 
We see a real point in the history of redemption where things are very different from this point forward than they have been before. And we see it really in three ways that I want to walk through together this morning. We see in this chapter a turning point that leads to a new identity, a new freedom, and a new salvation. A new identity, a new freedom, and a new salvation. First, we see in this chapter a new identity for the people of God. Here's one of the things you have to remember when you're reading this passage. Moses tells us over and over again, but maybe we can't quite wrap our minds around it. This is a group of people that's been in slavery for 400 years. I've recently gotten sucked into the Ancestry.com rabbit hole. I don't know if anybody's done that before. I would recommend it and wouldn't recommend it at the same time. Our, our hearts, we can't figure out what we want. And so, uh, but I got sucked in and here, I figured this out. My 10th great-grandfather in 1620 arrived in Plymouth, Massachusetts and then died immediately. Okay, now, so many interesting things. That's 402 years ago. That's the same amount of time as these people that we're dealing with in this passage have been in slavery in Egypt. That is a long time. Imagine being a 13-year-old boy or girl in slavery in Egypt. All you've ever known, all your parents have ever known, all your grandparents have ever known, everything in your history is slavery. It's wrapped up all in who you are. And so here's what inevitably happens. Slavery becomes your identity. You don't think, what do I want to do with my life? You don't think, what are my hopes and dreams? You don't even think, what do I want to do today? Here's all you know. The course of my life is set out for me. What I'm going to do today and tomorrow and next week is the same thing that my 10th great-grandfather and my grandfather and I'm going to do. We're going to be slaves in Egypt. We're going to be told what to do. We're going to be told who we are. We have no rights. We have no privileges. This is who we are. It's wrapped up in your identity. It's inextricably connected because your identity really has to do with these two things. Let me give you a definition of identity. It's a popular word in our culture today. It's talked about a lot, but it really comes down, boil it down to these two things. Identity is your sense of self. At your core, who you are most fundamentally, and it's your sense of worth. What gives your life value? And here's what we see in this passage. Every Israelite Every dad, every mom, every boy, every girl, their identity is slavery. It's all they've known. It's all they think they ever will know. And then God comes in and changes everything. He's going to do something that's going to change everything about their sense of worth, their sense of self, who they think they are, who they're made to be. And he does it in two ways early on in this passage. Look back at verse 1 with me. It says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be for you the first month of the year. Now, here's what's interesting. You think about being in slavery. You aren't going to really keep time. Think about how you keep time. Uh, You might do it by seasons. There aren't many seasons in Egypt. It's like hot and very hot and then hot again and then very hot again, right? Or you might keep time based on holidays. You're looking forward to Christmas or Thanksgiving or Labor Day or July 4th. What's coming up? When you're a slave, you have no holidays. You might keep time based on Monday to Friday, right? That's the work week. And then the weekend, you're always looking forward to it. For a slave, there is no Monday to Friday work week. There's work every day. And so time becomes nebulous. Days become years. Years become generations. They don't define things by time. And so what we think is that up until this moment, they never kept time at all. They didn't know. They had no concept for it. But God comes in. Here's what he says. I'm going to do something right now that's so going to reorient your identity. 
that's so going to change who you are, you're going to keep time itself based on what's going to happen. Every new year is going to be rung in by this event. This is what's going to give you an identity. And then secondly, he does something else interesting. Look at verse 3. He does it in verse 3, and then he does it in verse 6. He tells Moses and Aaron to report these Passover instructions to the congregation. That Hebrew word for congregation, we're going to see it 125 times from this moment until Joshua when the people come into the promised land. But this moment is the first time. Up until this moment, they've been called the sons of Israel, identified by their genealogy. Or they've been called Hebrews, identified by their ethnicity. But until this moment, they don't have an identity of a people. They've never been called a congregation. And so here's what God is saying. What's about to happen, what you're about to do is going to be the foundation of your new community. And we're going to see this as we read through Scripture. We're going to be amazed. You you will be amazed how many times the Passover is mentioned. How many times the biblical author makes sure to note that they're celebrating the Passover or God recalling the Exodus events and the Passover events and the Red Sea. This is going to be brought up over and over and over and over and over again. Why? Because the foundation of who they are, it's who they are as a people. This defines them. It gives them a sense of who they are fundamentally at their core, and it gives them a sense of their worth. Listen to what Alec Matir, an Old Testament scholar, says about the identity of an Israelite. I love this quote. He says, think about it. Think of what an Israelite would say on the way to Canaan after passing through the Red Sea. If you asked an Israelite, who are you? In other words, what's your identity? He would reply, I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death and in bondage, but I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And our mediator led us out, and we crossed over. Now we're on our way to the promised land, but we're not there yet. He's given us his law to make us a community, and he's given us a tabernacle because we must live by grace and forgiveness. And he's present in our midst, and he will stay with us until we arrive home. Do you understand that's basically, word for word, exactly what a Christian would say? Down to the detail. Because this story is our story. Their identity is our identity. Listen to Second Peter or First Peter chapter two, nine to ten. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Listen to this line. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so I just want to drill this down just for a second, this idea of identity, of who we are in Christ. Go back to that definition of identity just for a second. The identity has to do with two things, your sense of self and your sense of worth, what you are fundamentally at your core and what gives your life value. And so there's really four ways to determine your identity. And I want you to think, how do I determine who I am at my core? What gives me my sense of worth? There's really four ways that you can do it. And by the way, this is a huge conversation in our culture right now, in case you haven't noticed. And so it's key for us as Christians to understand this. Four things you can do. The first way you can get your identity is to say identity is achieved. Identity is achieved, which would be this tagline. You are what you have done. You are what you have done. And so your identity is basically this. I'm a successful person. Look at my track record. 
Look at my business. Look at my salary. I'm a good dad or a good mom. Look at my kids. I'm a person who's in shape and physically is attractive. Look at how hard I work to make that happen. My identity is in what I have done. I'm a, I'm a good moral person. Look at my track record. Nobody has a bad word to say about me. Your identity, your identity is achieved. You are what you have done. The second way you can do it is to say that your identity is imposed. Your identity is imposed. It would be this. You're, you are what has been done to you. You are what has been done to you. So maybe there's some comment in your past from a teacher or a parent or a friend, and you can't ever get it out of your head. You can't ever live it down. You always think about it, and it's gotten so ingrained in you, it's become who you are at your core. Or one moment, one moment of someone doing something to you that you can't ever get out of your head, that you can't ever forget, and it's come to define you. It's come to give you your worth. It's come to be a part of your sense of self. That would be an imposed identity. You are what has been done to you. Third category, your identity is realized. You are defined by something inside of you. This is the popular uh, way to form your identity and culture today, which would basically be this. If you want to know who you really are, block out the noise. Don't listen to what anyone else has to say. Look inside and see what you find there. What do you most deeply desire? What do you most deeply want? Who do you think you are? And so look inside and you can find out in your heart who you really are. Above all, be true to yourself. You define your own gender. You define your own sexuality. You define who you are. It can only be found inside. No one can tell you what else it is. And then finally, fourth category, your identity is received. You're defined by something outside of you. This is the identity that we see in this passage. This is the identity of a Christian. That our identity doesn't come from what we do. Our identity doesn't come from what we achieve. Do you realize if you live like that, your identity will always be in flux. You'll never know how much you're worth if you base who you are based on your family or your career or your success or your morality. What happens when those things fall apart? Who are you? If you look inside, your identity will always be complicated. Think of how often your feelings change, your motivations change, your deepest desires change. The only foundational place, the only place we can look for our identity that is going to stay is if we look outside of us. And so what happens is when our identity is formed in this way, it's solid. We don't go, what have I done? We think, what's been done for me? Who does God say that I am? And we place our identity there. Our identity is received. And here's what we see in this passage. We see a God who comes to us and says, I'm going to reorient everything about who you are by what I'm about to do for you. And here's what it says. You're so valuable. You're so loved. I care about you so deeply that I'm going to make it possible through substitution for you to not get what you deserve. Not through, for you, Christian, not through an innocent lamb, but through the death of God's son. 
that what your identity is, what your value is, what your worth is, can't be found inside of you. It's by looking outside of you and what God says. And what God says is, you're worth giving my son for. You're so loved, so valuable. I care about you so deeply. I'm going to prove it to you through giving my son. He became sin who knew no sin so that you may become the righteousness of God. And so the first thing Passover means for the people of God is a new identity. Secondly, we see a new freedom. We see a new freedom. Look back at the instructions in verse 22. Moses tells the people, you're going to get a spotless lamb. You're going to kill it. You're going to drain the blood. Just imagine receiving these instructions for a second, okay? You're going to kill a lamb, drain the blood, put it in a bowl, uh, put your belt on, get your coat on, make dinner, get ready, paint your doorposts with blood, sit down in the middle of the night with your family, and be ready to leave immediately, okay? Like if you're an Israelite, for a second aren't you going, Moses, like, did you hear God correctly? Is there a language barrier happening there? Like, this is not a good strategy. We're going to walk out of Egypt, where we've been for 400 years as slaves, by painting our doorposts with blood and eating dinner. Are we sure? Like, are we sure that's what's going to happen? For now they trust Moses. Verse 28, the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. They follow the instruction down to every detail, and they walk across the Red Sea as free people. And this has been the whole, the whole point, the whole time, freedom for God's people. Look at, this, uh, look at this verse in chapter 4. God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and say what? A lot of you know the song, right? Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, oh, no, some of you, just me. Let my people go, right? Let them go. We see that over and over again, starting in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 9, over and over again, Moses going to Pharaoh with the same exact message, free God's people, let them go. But there was always a purpose. When you were reading it, did you notice there was always a purpose statement attached to that command to let God's people go? What was it? We see it in Exodus chapter 4, let my son go, let Israel go, that he may serve me. Your version might have said, so that he might worship me. There was always a purpose to freedom. The purpose to freedom was not so the Israelites could finally get out of Egypt so they could go and do whatever they wanted to do. That's not biblical freedom. Biblical freedom is being freed up, being given the ability to go and do what you were created to do. True freedom is only found when we're living as we were created to live, serving God, worshiping God, loving God. And so this was the point of the Israelites getting out of slavery. God did not purchase us to give us rights over our lives. God purchased us to claim rights over our lives. Not to hurt us or to harm us, but to say, I'm going to show you true freedom. I'm going to show you the way to really live, the way you were created to live, the way that truly gives you life that you were intended to have. Maybe we can illustrate the difference in two songs that I think you'll all know. I'm not going to sing these. First song, one, one definition, way of thinking about freedom, which would be the ability to be whoever you want to be, goes like this. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Now you see. Let it go. Can't hold it back. Okay, I'm stopped. 
What's the message of that song? Nobody can tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do, and finally I'm free because I can do what I want to do. That's the definition of freedom that the world will give you. Be who you want to be. Do what you want to do, and you can finally be free. Biblical freedom is, as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. Biblical freedom is not the ability to be who you want to be. It's the freedom to be who you were created to be. And so the Israelites, for the first time, are given freedom. But here's the thing about freedom. It comes in phases. I learned so much about this from Tim Keller this week. We see this all over Scripture. Let me show you the phases of freedom that we see in Scripture. First of all, we have been freed from the penalty of sin. We've been freed from the penalty of sin. Romans 8, uh, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Secondly, we are being freed from the power of sin. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then finally, we will be free from the presence of sin. Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Freedom comes in phases. And haven't we seen that all throughout this passage this week? Think about it. Exodus chapter 12, the Passover happens. God's people go free. Exodus chapter 14, they cross the Red Sea. Objectively, they're free. They're free from slavery, right? But what happens almost immediately Over and over again, look at Exodus chapter 16, just one example. And the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. Listen to this sentence. See if you remember it this way. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Do you see what's happening in that moment? Objectively, they're free. Subjectively, they're still slaves. They're still being pulled back. They still, even though physically they're free, they're not all the way free. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives a great example of this, maybe a more modern example. He says, imagine you're a slave Uh, before the Emancipation Proclamation. You're a slave in the South, and you go into town, and you have no real rights, you have no real power, and a white person yells at you and tells you what to do. Well, in fear, you're going to cower back and respond and do do what they tell you to do, right? You're a slave. But he says, now imagine it's 10 years later. The Emancipation Proclamation has been signed. You have rights. You have freedom. But you go into the same town, and the same white person yells at you and tells you what to do. Objectively, you know, I have rights in this situation. Subjectively, what do you feel? Fear. You're being pulled back into slavery. Here's what the whole Christian life is. Praise God, objectively, we've been freed from the penalty of sin. Every day, subjectively, we work ourselves out of the power of sin. 
We live into the identity of who we are. That's what we do together as a church. We learn to live as free people. We learn to live as the people that God created us to be. It's not as simply as saying, well, God died for me. I'm now free from sin. Objectively true, but subjectively we work that out in all of life, learning who we were created to be. And then finally, and very quickly, God's people get a new salvation a new salvation. What exactly happens to earn this new identity and this new freedom? What exactly is this calendar altering event that allows them to be a people for the first time? What allows them to walk free? And the answer, of course, is the Passover. The Passover. And here's what's interesting. The Passover is connected to the 10th plague, right? 10th plague, death of the firstborn. The Passover is God giving the people the ability to get out of that. But what we've seen in the plagues so far is that often God um, keeps the Israelites to one side and the Egyptians to one side. The plagues only affect the Egyptians and don't affect the Israelites. So we saw that in that Israel's cattle didn't die, their crops weren't hailed on, their land didn't go dark. They didn't do anything to avoid those plagues. God just separated them. God just said, I'm not going to allow this to affect you. But when we come to this plague... When we come to the death of the firstborn, Israel is not separated. Everybody is lumped in together. Why? Why? Because the Israelites aren't innocent either. They're just as guilty as the Egyptians. Listen to Joshua 24, 14. Now, therefore, the fear of fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Every house stands guilty before God. Every house is going to be affected by this plague. Every house is going to have their firstborn die. God cannot simply pass over sin. He cannot simply sweep it under the rug. Death will visit every house. And doesn't that make you extremely uncomfortable? It made me extremely uncomfortable when I read it this week. Really? Every firstborn kid in every house has to die? Isn't that a little over the top? Isn't it a little far? We ask questions like that because we look at the Bible through man-centered eyes and we ask man-centered questions. We ask questions like, why can't God, why doesn't he just save everyone? Biblical questions, God-centered questions are questions like these. How could anyone possibly be spared? Is there any clearer picture of the sinfulness of man than the Passover? That every house death will visit. That every house stands guilty before God. And so we come to the question of the Bible. The question that has haunted us since Genesis 3 and will haunt us until the New Testament. The question is this, how can, a sin, or how can a holy, just God possibly forgive people that he loves? How can he do it? How can these two things possibly go together? This is what John Stott called the profoundest problem in the Bible. Listen to what he says. The crucial question we should ask, therefore, is not why God finds it difficult to forgive, but how he finds it possible to do so at all. In the words of Carnegie Simpson, forgiveness to man is the plainest of duties. To God is the profoundest of problems. The problem of forgiveness is constituted by the inevitable collision between divine perfection and human rebellion, between God as he is and us as we are. 
The obstacle to forgiveness is neither our sin alone nor our guilt alone, but the divine reaction in love and wrath toward guilty sinners. For although indeed God is love, yet we have to remember that his love is holy love, love which yearns over sinners while at the same time refusing to condone their sin. How then could God express his holy love, his love in forgiving sinners without compromising his holiness and his holiness in judging sinners without frustrating his love? What can God possibly do? It's all over this passage. Salvation comes through substitution. Salvation comes through substitution. The reason that God passes over some houses and doesn't pass over others has nothing to do with the lineage of who lives in that house. It has nothing to do with their moral record. It has nothing to do with how much faith they have. Only one thing mattered that night. Were you covered by the blood of the lamb or not? Death visited every house. Either the firstborn died or the lamb died. Someone died. Salvation through substitution. I love the picture that D.A. Carson gives of the Passover. He says, imagine the night before the Passover, two Jewish men named Smith and Brown are having a conversation. Most Jewish names he could come up with, I guess. So Smith and Brown are having a conversation, and Smith says to Brown, hey, Brown, like, are you nervous about what's about to happen? I mean, this is kind of freaky, like all the instructions and everything, like the lamb, the whole deal. My kids are still messed up from what we did. Are you nervous? And Brown says, why why would we be nervous? Like God told Moses what to do. Moses told us, I trust God. I stand on his promises. And Smith's like, yeah, but I mean, a lot of stuff has happened recently. Hail, cattle are dying, darkness, like It's pretty scary. I'm going to be pretty glad when this night is over. And Brown says, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. Whose son was spared that night? Both of them. Both of them. Because their great hope is not the quality of their faith. They don't stand on those grounds. Their great hope, their only hope, is the grounds of the blood of the Lamb. They were equally saved because they painted their doorposts. They trusted God, and God passed over salvation through substitution. What ultimately saves us, brothers and sisters, what ultimately makes the difference is not the quality of our faith, but the object of our faith. And we have it through the Lamb of God. Let me show you this very quickly, and then we'll be done. We've seen this imagery of the lamb before, right? This is one of the great things about reading through scripture that we get this great picture of God's redemptive story weaving through all of the Bible. In Genesis chapter two, Abraham and Isaac, what do we see? God giving one lamb for one man. In this chapter, Exodus chapter 12, we see that God gives one lamb as a sacrifice for one family. Leviticus chapter 16, the day of atonement, one lamb bears the guilt of the whole nation, one lamb for whole nation. John chapter one, Jesus steps on the scene and what does John say? Behold the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. One lamb for the whole world. And then Revelation chapter five, which we read earlier, so beautifully shows us that that one lamb sent for the whole world stands victorious over death, hell, sin, and the grave. One lamb for all of us. And so what makes the difference? 
What makes the difference between your life being passed over or you being punished for your sin? Only one thing, the blood of the lamb shed for you. Not the quality or amount that you believe it, but the object of your faith, who is Christ. You know, it's no accident that the night before Jesus was crucified, what's he celebrating with his disciples? The Passover, right? The Passover. Because the next day, the Lamb of God is going to hang on the cross to pay for the sins of the world. The firstborn Son of God is going to bear our sins so that we can be brought into the family of God. What a beautiful picture of salvation through substitution. Let's finish this quote from John Stott. The question of the Bible is answered at the cross. In holy love, God through Christ paid the full penalty of our disobedience himself. He bore the judgment that we deserve to bear in order to bring us the forgiveness we do not deserve. On the cross, divine mercy and justice were equally expressed and eternally reconciled. God's holy love was satisfied. What makes the difference for us? Either we're covered by the blood of the lamb or we're not. And so we come to this table and that 